Looking at these three verses, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As we go to the Word of God, it is always an urgent matter to see what the Lord has said, to hear what the Lord has said, to know what God has written and commanded His people is always an urgent matter. And often in preaching, uh, it is the practice of the preacher because we have poured over a passage for a week to communicate in some way, this is the most important thing you will ever hear. I try to refrain from doing that, though I might feel that way many Sundays, uh, because it's not very convincing when someone tells you every week that they're telling you something that's the most important thing that you'll ever hear. Though it might be true in the gospel, but here we have biblical authority that this is an urgent matter. As Paul writes, he says, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, This would be, I command you, I beseech you, I am pleading with you, I beg you. And then Paul goes on with the words that he commands, or that the Spirit of God commands by the hand of Paul. And so I I want to look at these three verses, and I, I hope you will share with me the urgency of these verses in the middle of the book of Ephesians. As we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians again and again, I have reminded you, praying that you will get tired of the reminder, praying that you will know before I even tell you, praying that you will tell people for the rest of your life. Ephesians is written in two sections, verses chapter rather one through three, giving doctrinal truth and the commands and the truth of our salvation and chapters four through six, commanding how we ought to live then as a result. And that's what chapter 4, verse 1 says. It is a pivotal turning point in the book of Ephesians. Paul says he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. It is the first time in the book that Paul says you need to do something rather than know and remember. You must live a certain way. And so as we look at verses 1 through 3, I want to encourage you in these three things. In verse 1, the calling to which you have been called. Verse 1, the calling to which you have been called. And then verse 2a, because verses are just marked there by somebody else. That's not divine scripture. So I would say 2a needs to be separate here. Verse 2a, a calling worthy of commitment to godly character. And then closing out this section, a calling worthy of commitment to godly community. So first, the calling to which you have been called. And that calling is proclaimed in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Because as you already know, Ephesians is broken down in two sections. Section 1, the truth of your calling. And as we look at this calling, I want to remind you what Paul is saying here. When he says, therefore... He's saying because of everything that has been said, because of what came prior. And here we have a shifting point in that he's now commanding how you should live. So that therefore is all of your calling before. 
Therefore, because of your calling. So let's first look at the calling to which you have been called. Notice it is not the calling you are seeking to achieve. It's not the calling that you are hoping will be true of your life. It is the calling that is true of your life. And I don't say that just based on the authority of 4.1 in that he says this is the calling to which you have been called, past tense, already completed. But on the authority of chapter 1, we see first your calling was before the foundation of the world. And so if you want to look at the slides that are up there, what I did was just walk through chapter 1 in writing down what is true of our calling from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. So first, you were called before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in Christ. You were called to be loved as his son or daughter because of the grace of Christ, the Son of God. You were called to live for the praise of God's glory. You were called through redemption, forgiven in grace and lavished in grace to join Christ in the uniting of all things under creation, rather in creation under Christ. You were called to be his and share in all things with him by the power that works everything to his will. And you were called that you would be that you would put your hope in Christ because you would hear the gospel and then live by the spirit of God until he completes his plan to the praise of God's glory. In chapter 1 we saw that you have been called by the work and the accomplishments of God. That you have been called as the foundational truth that you cannot change that was accomplished not just before you were born but before anything was created. He determined the call. In chapter 2, then, we see the truth of our calling as we are concerned. Our calling is predetermined by Him, but you are called to all of that, not because you deserved it. But in chapter 2, we see that you were called when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were living according to the course of the world. You were called when you pursued every evil and selfish passion, deserving the wrath of God. You were called because of His abundant mercy and overflowing love. You were called to live by the power and grace of God, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He called you. Not because you got things together, but because of His grace and mercy, He called you to live by the power of the Spirit. And He enabled that. You are called to be a living example of God's grace, deserving His full wrath and given His full favor because of Christ. You are called to life prepared by Him in providence that we can live proclaiming the goodness and the mercy of God in us. You were called and united by the blood of Christ, brought together with hope because Christ has brought us near to God. You were called as reconciled to God and united together. Freed from hostility and division because Christ is our peace, free from our guilt, made clear by the law, 
as Christ has fulfilled the law for us, removing the separation of the law. Called by the power of the gospel that unites us in a purpose to live and to grow together for his glory. By the power of his spirit, called with the witness of the apostles and the prophets, the fulfillment of Christ in the gospel, that we are all together heirs of Christ, members of the same body and recipients of the promises of God. You are called by the same power and grace that Paul called Paul, who was a murderer of Christians. And yes, under the power of God, he then by God's power called and proclaimed the unsearchable, the unsearchable riches of Christ in the gospel. And you are called together so that we can have an open access to God, confident in our position in Christ, by faith knowing that God has accomplished all of this for us to live and display His power through all creation as His church. Your calling is determined by God. Your calling is not a response to who you were, but despite who you were, by His grace, He has called you. And your calling is the only thing that can unite all of creation. It is the only thing that will unite His people. And it is the reason you can live with hope in God and unity together. And Paul says, because of that calling then, we ought to walk in a manner worthy because you have been called in that way you ought to walk in such a way that displays that calling it is not again it is not a call to godly character so that god will save you as paul says i therefore a prisoner of the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called You must recognize the words here. I therefore, in response to the calling I just proclaimed, walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which you have been called. How do you know the calling? Because the word of God proclaims it. How have you been called? Why have you been called? What are the circumstances of your calling? What does it mean to be Christ's, to be saved, to be a Christian, to be born again? To be a lover of Jesus, to be a community of people together for the purposes of the gospel. All of the ways we use to describe ourselves as Christians means you've been called. You are His. You were saved. All of this is true of your life. If, if that is not true, it is urgent that you would cry out in repentance as you hear the truth of the gospel, as you know you were dead in your sins, as you know that Christ is the only way to salvation, then you would respond, as Ephesians 1.13 said, and cry out to Him and show that He has called you. But, assuming that you are a Christian, as the letter of Ephesians is written to the church of Ephesus, not people in general, Paul says, because this calling is true of you, Because you have responded to the gospel. Because your hope is in Christ. There is a way you ought to live. There is a way you are obligated to live. Not to earn God's favor, but because God's favor has been shown to you. And so first then, whoops, sorry I didn't skip to that. Not very good at PowerPoint. First then, a calling worthy of a commitment to godly character. A calling worthy of commitment to godly character. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he gives three descriptors with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. What is humility? What makes someone humble? And we talked about this last week. If you remember, I went on a uh, contextually well-placed rabbit trail uh, of humility. And, and what does humility mean then? Well, humility in its summary is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Which is an amazingly concise and helpful definition made by C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility. It's very small. It's a quick read. I would highly recommend it. Because it is rooted in Scripture, his definition is drawn from, and throughout the book, he points to the truth of Scripture, that humility is not someone who thinks nothing of themselves, just in general, but it is someone who is so understanding to the truth of who God is that they have no choice but to think very little of themselves outside of what God has accomplished. Humility is measuring who you are before God as a result of your calling. It's not just a low view of self, but a right view of self because God has called you. And as I talked about last week, a false humility will cause you to look at people and say, well, all people are created in the image of God and they are equal, given particular rights by their creator. That's a different document. This document says that all people were created in the image of God and all people have rebelled against God in such a way that what they deserve is the wrath of God. And it is not people's equality to you that should cause you to be humbled, but it is people's rebellion against God with you included in that rebellion that ought to cause you to fall to your knees and plead for mercy, to repent and to live by faith every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that type of humility will not cause you to exalt other people to a place they don't deserve, or to exalt yourself over people in a place you don't deserve, but to see all people rightly as bowed to God and living for His glory and His glory alone. And in doing so, you will somehow find what is a complete paradox to the world, a complete contradiction that you could be joyfully humbled, that you could live as one who is broken and humble with an unexplainable joy because of the grace of God in your calling. True humility can only be found by dwelling on the holiness of God and His grace in calling you to be holy. True humility is only the understanding that you are called to be holy and blameless and you will be in Christ because He predestined to do so before the foundation of the world. True humility is to wake up with that joy being true, whether it feels true when you wake up or not, and to rest in that, to live in that. Gentleness You're not only to be humbled before God because of your calling, but you are to be gentle toward others. You are to be gentle. You are to treat others as a uh, result of not being impressed with yourself and your ability, what you can do, 
but what is best for them. To have care and compassion. To be gentle. It doesn't mean that you don't ever say anything difficult to anyone. But it's you say it to them in such a way that is gentle. Paul says that we ought to rebuke people gently. We ought to correct them with gentleness. Gentleness should be the character nature of a Christian. You should not be one who is known for being harsh. Not be one who is known for speaking your mind. Not be one who is known to say what needed to be said. Because I'm just that type of guy or girl. You should be known for being one who is gentle. Known for one who holds back what maybe could be said truly, but is said at a time that is gentle. Sometimes we, sometimes I, act as an unfit Christian because I pretend that I'm the the Holy Spirit. I see your problem and I'm going to do surgery on it. So I have assessed your issue and now I'm going to fix your issue by slamming you with the Word of God. Can you imagine if doctors treated you as such? You walked into an office, they said, you have a tumor? It's in your left hip. Strap them down. Grab you, cut your hip open. I'm going to rip the tumor out. Just shut up, I'm doing what you need. Don't say shut up, kids, sorry. There's there's no gentleness. There's no assumption in that what I am doing is for the benefit of the other person. There's an arrogant assumption that I know what's best. It doesn't matter how they feel. I'm going to do what's necessary. You would write the worst Yelp review ever. You would never go back. You would sue them. And yet, knowing the way that we have been called, sometimes... We can be the harshest of people. We can arrogantly, without humility, assume that we know what to say and we could say it best, so I will say it now. Gentleness with patience. The temperament, calm, waiting, and slow to act. Not expedient or rushed, but controlled and slow and purposed. And though these things sound like individualistic goals to us, they they are not, right? You hear, okay, I've got to be humble, and I've got to be gentle, and I've got to be patient. So now I've got to figure that out. I've got to do that. These are not individualistic goals. The command here is not that you personally have to figure out how to be humble, how to be gentle, and how to be patient. This is the command for God's people. This should be the character, nature of God's people. These are all plural commands. And though they sound individualistic to us, they are commitments of the people of God. We are not called to be alone. We are called as individuals, but we are called to live as individuals as the member of Christ, as a body. We are called to be those who are not pursuing individual goals, but we are called to be one body, united in Christ, called to good works that He's prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. As an individual, but as an individual member of a body. Alone, you might think you're really humble. You might actually tell yourself that over and over and over again all day about just how humble you are. You don't interact with other people, but you watch their lives on Facebook and you think, wow, I'm humble. 
alone, you might assume that you're very gentle. You're never harsh with yourself. You would never do anything to hurt or make yourself uncomfortable in any way that wasn't necessary for your own good. Alone, you are incredibly patient. You never overreact. You always assess yourself as acting the right way at the right time. You're quite temperate. Your emotional response is always the right response for the moment. Alone, you will deceive yourself like the rest of mankind, hostile toward one another, hating one another, and living for your own passion and your own life. You can convince yourself of anything when you're alone. But with others, you learn what these things really mean by experience and in the example of God's grace in the calling of His body. You might assume you're gentle because you're not as harsh as you used to be. And then you see the gentleness of God. You see gentleness manifest in another believer. And you realize, I'm not gentle at all. If I was only to compare my life to that other Christian, let alone the God who made all things, I have no understanding of what gentleness is. God has brought the body together for the purposes of the body, but the body is called together. Let me just walk you through your calling, and your calling is one that is called together. The first verse we looked at and mentioned in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whose Lord? Our. Collective, plural, inclusive of all of us. Our. The church of Ephesus and Paul included. And by statement that this wasn't written for, to us, but it is for us, he is our Lord also, who has blessed us. Who has blessed us, not you personally, but inclusive language for the people of God. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You are called and recreated to trust in Christ together. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How many times have you applied that verse to you? I need to find the good works that I was prepared, that were prepared for me beforehand so that I can walk in them. I'm not saying that's wrong, that you shouldn't try to pursue what God has called you to do, but don't remove the context of the grammar of the Word of God because it is intentional and purposed. He didn't say that you personally live on this earth to do good works alone, and He has called you to them. He says that we have been created in Christ Jesus, that we might walk in good works that He has prepared beforehand, individually as a member of His body, called and proclaiming the wisdom of God together. We looked at it last week in Ephesians 3, 10 through 12. So that through the church, the gathering, the assembly of God's people, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
Again, this is not you alone. This is the people of God. You were not called individually to be an individual. You were individually called to be a member of the body. A body that manifests gentleness and humility, patience and care. And you are called to walk together in a manner worthy. In the context of our own passage, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord urge you. And this is the one where we get a free pass. We're from California. We don't have a plural you. If we did, it would be like you guys or dudes. Uh, But we don't. We just say you. And so how do you know if it's a plural you or a singular you? You don't. And though I would say Californians are the only people that don't have an accent, I would also recognize that our perfect English is flawed and that it excludes a plural you. Y'all. This is y'all. So it should read... As Josh would read it for us. It should say, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge y'all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called. And you would believe it because it sounds so much better if Josh read it. But the text is true either way. It is a plural you. It is y'all. And so y'all must walk in a manner worthy. Why ride this point so much? Because though you are called as individuals together, called for the glory of Christ, that doesn't minimize your individual part in the people of God. It clarifies it. The fact that you are called together does not minimize your purpose in the people of God. It clarifies it. Our society hates the idea that anyone would have to conform to a group, would have to conform to another would have to put their own feelings, their own hearts, their own understanding aside to serve the group or to serve another. But Christian, that is part of our calling. And we will get to in in the coming week. Verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of God's gift. He chooses to use language that communicates the individual aspect. That grace was given to each one of us. Each one of you have been given grace by God, to be part of His church. And grace was given to each one according to Christ's gift. He gave each person grace in such a way that they would function as part of the body. That's what Ephesians 4 is going to move to. And right here in the context, we see that this is not just an individual character call. This is to be the character of a body. A calling worthy of commitment to godly community. He says, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Bearing with one another in love. You are to bear with or you are to put the burden on yourself. If there's going to be difficulty, if it's going to be hard, what are you to do as a Christian? You are to carry the difficulty. You are to put the burden on your own back. You are to be humble and gentle and patient in such a way that is willing to be the one who has to bear the suffering. He says, bearing with one another in love. Often we don't bear with one another well. We bear with one another, right? And we grit our teeth and bear it. 
I've, I've heard pastors my whole life say such things as, I love the ministry, but I don't like the sheep because they bite. How can you be a minister of God's people and not love His people? It's not just pastors. It's not just people that speak publicly. Many of us feel in such a way. I love Jesus, but the relationships of the church are just too hard. I'm just not a people person. Some of you, maybe even in COVID, you think, oh, this is great. Finally, I'm all alone and I get to focus on my own things, my own issues. I can deal with myself. I can get a little bit of me time. Notice he doesn't proclaim, because of your calling, you will be perfect in love with one another. He says you must bear with one another in love. You must bear with one another in love. The beauty of this command is that it does not assume you don't need it. Right? If, if your heart tends to be that, of, which is sometimes even publicly communicated, that I love Christ, I just hate people. You're in good company. Because Christ is the God who changes people who hate people, hate others, and hate one another, who live in foolishness and ignorance and every selfish desire to love people. Because they are so overwhelmed by the grace of God in their calling. And He is so patient and gentle in love. That he commands you. You need to do this. You need to be after this. This is an act of faith and repentance. When your heart says, I love God, I just hate people. Repent. Be reminded of your calling. He says, therefore, you ought to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And you think, okay, well, I'm called and I'm supposed to love people. But really, I hate people. What do I do? You go back. To Ephesians 2. And remind yourself the truth. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were just like every other human on earth. Pursuing the passions of the flesh. You had no hope. And were without God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when you were dead in your trespass and sins. Made you alive together with Christ. And you think, yeah, but they're just so different than I am. Jake smells. He has facial hair. He's a a Gentile to the fullest extent. He raises pigs. He might as well be one. How can I bear with such a man? And I hope you tell my wife to repent. To love one another. To care for one another. We've been looking at in in our marriage series, the most intimate of relationships is where it is most clear to us. It's those relationships that are most difficult that cause us to go, whoa, I am a sinner. Whoa, I, I need some help. Just tonight in this text, I'm not humble. I'm not gentle. I'm rarely, if ever, patient. What hope is there for me? 
Ephesians 1 through 3. You've been called. He will work. He is faithful. You are called to bear with one another in love. To be patient, enduring. I know it's difficult, but you will never be able to do it in body if you are not first fully confirmed in mind of the grace of God to you from Ephesians 1 through 3. You will never be able to bear with anyone in love if you are not broken and overwhelmed by the truth of God bearing with you in love. Reflect on the patience of God when you assumed that you can't bear the present issue. When you think, there's no way I can bear with this brother or sister in love, reflect on the patience of God to you. I think of Romans 2. He says, Or do you presume, speaking to Jews who would find themselves righteous or committing unrighteous acts and assuming they're okay? He says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, His patient kindness is not weakness, it's mercy. We are at times more eager to show the justice of God in our actions, then we are to wait and we then ignore the patience of God that He has shown to us. We forget the way in which we were called, a patient and long-suffering way, a way that deals with your sin, a way that has given you commands that you can live by faith and repent of in faith to live for Christ, a way that did not crush you because when you go to the Word of God and you find yourself crushed, you think, why did He not pour out His wrath on me like the rest of mankind? Because He is kind and patient. He is practicing forbearance. He is eager to make it known that you ought to repent. And so often we think, everything's going fine. It's not that hard. Life's pretty good. I'm doing well. I have everything I could want. If I could just get a little bit more. We live thinking everything's fine. We presume on God's kindness, thinking we don't need to go after anything. We think it's all right. And then we start functioning with people. And then we realize the abundant need for patience and gentleness and humility. And in God's grace, we start to recognize the abundance grace of God to give us patience and humility and gentleness And to act toward us in gentleness and patience and humility. To plan and purpose. And and do not think this means then God is not just. You think, you know what, I want to be patient. But there comes a time where patience is no longer necessary. Right? We we can't be patient forever. I agree. You, You can't live on earth forever. Sin will kill you. Sin will kill everyone. Sin is a death sentence. The only way you could endure anything forever is by the grace of God. And He will not endure forever the sin of man. If you continue to read in Romans 2, He says that because of the hard and unrepentant heart of man, they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day when God will judge, the, will judge man. 
And so if, if you hear this and you think, I can't be patient, I can't be humble, I, I can't be gentle, that's not who I am. And I'm not sure if I have to be. Nothing bad has happened to me thus far. I'm okay. I just try to better myself. I, I try to be a little bit better every day. But I think I'm doing all right. Don't let the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God confuse you to think that everything is fine. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He did not write that you ought to be patient and gentle and humble because you already are and he wanted to congratulate you. He wrote that you must be patient and gentle and humble because you have never known how to practice those things. Until the patience and the gentleness and the grace and the mercy of God humbled himself to become a man that you might be saved. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Not only are we to bear with one another in love, but we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Notice the contrasting nature of these words. You are to bear with one another, willing to suffer, willing to put things aside, slow-moving, gentle, patient, enduring. But there is something you must not be patient in. Something you must not be slow-moving in. Something you must be eager in. Something that you must make effort toward. Something that you must be motivated to do. Something that is purposeful, that will cost you, that might be painful. You must maintain the unity of the Spirit. You must do so quickly. That must be your goal. Willing to take pain or to exert effort in order to maintain to keep it, to watch it. You can think of it this way, right? You, you probably have lots of appliances and other things in your house. We are super wealthy Americans. We have lots of possessions, lots of electronics, lots of things. And the majority of them come with a manual. A manual with, with, which, if you're like me, you never touch. You just leave it in the box. And you assume, I know how to use this. I was born in the change of no technology to technology. I'm the generation that knows how to figure this out. And then you fail and your 10-year-old son shows you how to do it because you wouldn't go to the manual. He says, you ought to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You must be one who pursues to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How can you maintain it? Well, this is not a manual. For you, but it is a proclamation of how the Spirit has unified the people of God. Ephesians 1 through 3 particularly proclaim that He has unified His people. The Spirit has already accomplished unity, He has sealed believers and marked them as God's. Ephesians 1 13. So when you see another believer and you think, there's no way I can deal with this person. You have one of two choices. You can say, clearly they're not a Christian. Because God says that if you love him, you'll love his people. And I hate them. So they must not be his people. That's the, that's the most arrogant stance you could ever take. How do I assess who's a true believer? Those people who are easy for me to love. Because God has said I'll love his people. 
Or you could take the humble route and assume that the profession of faith is a sign of the work of God, that He has marked them, that they are His. And you are in their life to be part of the body, to be with them, that they might be more gentle and patient, and you might love them. So you remind yourself the unity of the Spirit is that God has called His, and we know the calling by the proclaiming of the gospel and the response of a heart to say Christ is everything. He united believers in fellowship to God, Ephesians 2.18. He builds up believers together for the praise of God, Ephesians 2.22. He proclaimed through the apostles and the prophets the unifying truth of God's promise over all creation that He would redeem and bring everything into right place in Christ, Ephesians 3.5. And He, the Spirit, strengthens His people to live for God's glory and commands in God's commands because of God's grace. We remind one another of that truth. And we live together in that truth. And He will continue to work in us. Because we are not ones who create the unity of the Spirit. We are ones who maintain. We keep. We guard the unity of the Spirit. And how do we do so? I would propose to you from context, you do so by humility and gentleness. And patience with one another, bearing with one another in love, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the unity of the Spirit is purchased in something. The last phrase of Ephesians 4 3 the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What God has brought together, let no man separate. Are you familiar with those words? Right? Maybe the day you got married. It says, what God has brought together, let no man separate. They used to be frequently used as weddings, describing the relationship of a married couple. That God says He will take two and He will make them one flesh. And that flesh ought not to separate. They ought to remain as man and wife. And we see in Ephesians 5, as we will get there, it is because it proclaims a relationship. The relationship of Christ and His church. As Christians, we hear those words in marriage and we think these words are true. The church is the bride of Christ. And if therefore the church is the bride of Christ, marriage ought to be held in high esteem. We ought to be those who honor the marriage bed. We ought not to be those who lightly look at divorce. We ought not to be those who say, you know what, sometimes you can be happier if you just separate from each other. I don't know when it was. But at some point in American law, started a system that allowed divorce for what is called irreconcilable differences. It means that people are allowed to divorce for any reason in which they see fit. Because they cannot reconcile their differences. Now, now why this issue of marriage? Why this phrase, what God has been together, let no man separate? Well, what is proclaimed here is that the people of God have been brought together by a bond of peace. They have been bound together in peace. And what is that peace? Well, just previously in Ephesians 2, we saw that that peace is Christ Himself. 
That He preached peace and that He was the peace that bound His people. Christian, if we are going to be those who esteem that marriage must remain together, not separate, because it was the design and purpose of God, and that any time it's separated, we need to be those who move slowly and carefully to see if God would permit such a separation, that He would allow it, because He knows in our sinfulness there will be times that such a separation takes part. If we are going to be those who hold so fastly to the truth there, do you hold so fastly to the truth when it comes to Christ's bride? Do you hold the marriage of Christ and His bride as highly as you figuratively or or philosophically hold marriage? As you intentionally hold your marriage... Are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because Christ has bought His bride? Whenever you believe there is a worthy war between you and a brother or a sister, remember the blood that bought you was a blood that bought peace. It was not bloodshed in a just war. Jesus' blood was not spilled in a blaze of glory. We don't talk about the blood of Christ like many talk about the blood of our forefathers who purchased us this peace. It was not in fight and battle. It was blood bought and shed in shame. Blood shed for guilt. And the guilt was not His own, but ours. It was not a glorious death. It was not one we stand behind and say, I would die like that too. It is one we stand behind and say, I could never die like that. He died for us. Because while we were yet His enemies, Christ died for us. While we were rebels, Christ died for us. His blood was not shed in glory, it was shed in shame. Whatever bond holds you together on earth to others, there is no bond like the bond of peace. He is your peace. Peace purpose to unite you in reconciliation to God. To proclaim to the world the only hope for reconciliation. Salvation through Christ. Under this peace, we will be united forever in Christ. Don't divide from one another or unite with one another in your own idea of unity. Don't let your similarity on earth be what has bound you. Don't let your function in life be what draws you together. Find your unity in the work of the Spirit, the bond of peace, salvation purchased by Christ. And when you feel that sin is clinging closely... When you feel the distance in relationship, the difficulty of your own sin and the sin of others. When you feel that you cannot endure any longer. When you feel the world is too divided and your own heart is quickly dividing. I want to encourage you with the words of the Spirit penned by the author of Hebrews. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, 
Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Christ for the sake of His bride. Christ for the glory of God. Christ not in glory, but in shame, endured the cross. That the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the patience and the forbearance and the love and the justice of God would be proclaimed over all creation. When you feel your heart clinging closely to the sin of your old life, when you feel a bitterness, a resentment, a selfishness, a partiality, an anger rising up in you against a brother, lay aside the weight. Lay aside that sin which clings so closely and run with endurance remembering that Christ died for you that you might be in glory. But He was shamed that you might be saved. And not you alone, but His bride, the church. Let us pray that we would run with endurance, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling at a time where division seems the easy solution to everything. To be those who are willing to die for peace. Not to die in war, but to die to ourselves that Christ might live in us. Father, we thank You that You are a God of grace and mercy. I thank you, Father, that you look at me and you do not see impatience. You do not see a failure in gentleness or an arrogance of humility or lack of humility, rather. But you see in the grace of Christ, your plan and purpose that that we would be blameless and holy before you. I thank you, Father, that you are a God who is long-suffering. I thank you, Father, as we often want to give up in a matter of days or weeks. For centuries you proclaimed the Messiah. For centuries you proclaimed that you were the only way to righteousness. For centuries you have been patient with man after the garden. For centuries you planned and purposed to send Christ. And you sent him, and you saved your people. And for centuries since, you have had patience and kindness. You have shown forbearance that man might repent. I thank you, Father, for the repentance you have granted us in salvation. I pray that you would help us to live by faith and repentance. I pray that we would walk in a manner that doesn't just believe a calling but walks worthy of such a calling. I thank you, Father, that you have united us by your Spirit. 
I pray you would give your church strength now to endure and to maintain the unity of the Spirit above all things. Because you have bought us and have purchased our peace by the blood of your Son. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.